Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risks and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the US, Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Lindsay Rogerson, a senior editor at Regulatory Intelligence based in London, and today's episode, I'm speaking with my colleague Henry Engler, also a senior editor from our New York office. Hi, Henry. Hi there, Lindsay. Good to be here. Great to have you, Henry. So, regular listeners to Compliance Clarified will have heard me talk often and perhaps too much over the last couple of years about the numerous rules coming out of Europe in the sustainability space. And I should just sprinkle in here that the European lawmakers are not done and they managed to squeeze in a few more regulatory legislative uh, pieces before the end of last year. But that is a topic for another day because in episode two of season 10, we are going to discuss what has been happening with sustainability reporting on Henry's side of the pond. So Henry, As we enter 2024, I think it is fair to say that there is an awful lot of uncertainty around what is happening with sustainability in the United States. It's an election year, and I checked this just before we started recording. Donald Trump remains both the polls and bookies' favorite to win not only the Republican nomination, but the November election as well. Trump is not a fan of any sort um, of sustainability legislation, but as we start 2024, what does that mean for financial firms? Well, um, thanks, Lindsay, for that introduction. And uh, yes, you're quite right about uh, the polls and Donald Trump. And tomorrow we have a uh, primary in New Hampshire. And if Donald Trump wins that primary, he, he will be crowned the Republican nominee. And so then the election race is on between him and and the current president, Joe Biden. Um, But as you say, um, if if in fact the election uh, does bring about a second Republican term for Donald Trump um, from a regulatory standpoint, um, in terms of climate issues, um, it, it what one can expect a huge pullback. Um, Certainly uh, in the last Trump administration, um, he pulled out of the Paris Agreement on climate that is expected again, should he win re-election. And from the from the regulatory standpoint, I think um, everything will be tossed in the air um, to the extent, for example, the SEC's proposed rules on climate disclosure, which we've been waiting for, which has been delayed several times now. Uh, Rumor has it they may uh, finalize the rule in April, um, but with the uncertainty over uh, the November elections, uh, I don't think I'm alone uh, in the the thinking that they may just hold off indefinitely um, to see what the outcome of the election is. Thanks, Henry. That's really helpful. But it's not the only, you mentioned the SEC, and it's not the Trump isn't the only kind of uncertainty that we have uh, looming for the US either, is it? We've got the Supreme Court case, which might strike out the SEC's ability to write rules. Am I correct in that understanding? Yes. Yes, Lindsay. There, there, there are two 
um, court cases before this Supreme Court that uh, bring into focus what's called the Chevron Doctrine. And it's, um, it's a case that goes back to 1984, which effectively gives federal agencies like the SEC, like the Federal Reserve, the Environmental Protection Agency, so on and so forth, um, the authority to make regulations. And, and what, what the decision at that time reflected the belief that you could not um, have the courts or Congress really manage federal regulations in an effective way that they would not have the insight, they would not have the knowledge, they would not have the expertise on a whole range of issues that federal agencies have, such as the SEC. So you have these two court cases. Um, one is called Loper Bright, for those who are interested. The other is Relentless, and, and they both have to do with fishing. I won't go into that detail, but anyway, um, those two cases are before the court. The plaintiffs are arguing that um, the federal agencies have overstepped their authority for various reasons, and therefore the court has an opportunity now to make a very uh, big decision on the authority of what many on the political right call the administrative state, that is, agencies like the SEC. And if the court... As, as we all know, uh, many of us know the court is, has a, a conservative majority, and should they uh, rule in, in favor of the plaintiff, then that creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty about the scope and authority of agencies like the SEC. Just um, for the purpose of clarifying for our listeners, are we talking here about the um, SECs and other regulators' ability to write rules in the future, or are we talking here about a strikeout of every rule the SEC has ever written? Very good question. It's certainly the case of the former going forward, that uh, the ability of the SEC and other agencies to write rules and regulations will be limited. How limited, we don't know. Uh, depends on how the court would decide. Um, and the details of that regarding past rules and regulations, that's an excellent question. And it's one that even Justice Amy Comey Barrett raised in the initial arguments last week. She posed that question to the court itself and simply said, if we were to open this up to past litigation, you know, past rules and that, which could be re-litigated, then, then we're going to see a deluge of cases come before the court, and they could be swamped with uh, this type of litigation. So I think it's it's fair to say that this is a this is a very complicated issue for the court in the sense that what they decide could complicate their own um, judicial processes as well as those of other courts, and you could. You could imagine a situation where then companies are facing uh, lower court decisions on something like climate change in one state, um, whereas another state decides, well, we're going to do something else. And, and so it's a huge uh, case before the court that could really curtail or curb the power of uh, federal agencies. 
Thanks, Henry. That's a lot for our listeners to mull over. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. I want to switch now from uncertainty and because I don't want to leave people with the impression that they could just sit on their hands here um, and because we do have one state that has been very clear and very certain um, that it intends to what it intends to do with sustainability reporting. California has passed SB 253 climate corporate data accountability act and SB 261 the greenhouse gases Climate-Related Financial Risk Act. Henry, what are they and who is caught? Well, they are two rules regarding climate disclosure um, that requires companies that operate in the state of California uh, to report on their scope one, two, and scope three emissions. Now, there's a threshold in terms of who will be affected. You have to quote unquote, do business in the state of California. And some people feel that's a bit ambiguous. What do you mean by that? Um, But in terms of actual uh, revenue production, you'd have to have a billion dollars or more within a fiscal year um, to be required to report. So for um, that's for SB 253, the, the Climate Emissions Accountability Act. Um, for SB 261, the annual revenue threshold is less. It's 500 million per year. So that, that's, that's the uh, sort of broad top line parameters of who would be um, in scope for this regulation. And I think what's, what's really important, though, is that, um, and again, this, this differs with what the SEC has so far proposed, the California rule would be applicable to both publicly traded companies and private enterprises. Under the SEC's initial proposal, um, only publicly traded companies would be required to report on scope one, two, and three emissions. And, and for the SEC, I mean, there's uncertainty about whether in any final rule they would include scope three since it's been so controversial. But the timelines for this uh, really argue that the companies who are in scope, who are captured by this new California rule, should really be working towards preparing for it because the due dates are coming up relatively soon. Uh, for scope one and two uh, emissions, the initial year of reporting is 2026. And for scope three, it's 2027. So you'd have to report for Scope one and two, you have to use your prior fiscal year, 2025, to report, to be able to report in 26. And the same for scope three, you would be looking at uh, your emissions of your suppliers for 2026. And so there's a lot of work. If companies haven't started yet, there's a lot of work for them to do to get ready to comply. Thanks, Henry. So 
if we just frightened all the compliance, legal and risk professionals um, based in the US or in California who are listening in, I think it's important to underscore that they are not starting in a vacuum here um, or with a blank sheet of paper. The companies you're talking about, you know, are the very largest. So if they are doing business in California, they are probably already um, doing business in Europe or some of them will have crossover there. So they're already will have done work on the corporate, the European Corporate Sustainable Reporting Directive. Certainly the climate elements of that piece of legislation are very similar to what California is proposing. I say similar, not identical. Um, and then also we now have the International Sustainability Board's um, Sustainability Standards S2, the climate one. Again, firms will probably be familiar with that and certainly TCFD, which fed into that um, work. So is any of that going to be useful when people are sitting down and trying to work out where they start and what needs to get done? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, to the extent that you're a U.S. multinational and you're operating in Europe, um, you're facing the, the climate disclosure rules you've just described under CSRD. And so you have a head start in that sense. Um, you can certainly leverage the, uh, the processes that you've put in place in, for your European operations to transfer them to your operations in, in California. And so to that extent, I think you don't, won't have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, um, because you're already collecting that information abroad in Europe. And it really sort of, I mean, I, I sometimes like to sort of uh, equate this or compare it to what many companies need to do in terms of their know your customer uh, processes when they're uh, onboarding new clients from a from a uh, anti-money laundering perspective. And this certainly for scope three, that will be the challenge is obtaining the information about your suppliers and vendors in terms of their carbon emissions, which will be a challenge and, and many Companies, certainly here in the U.S., uh, make that point. They say it's going to be arduous to get that kind of information from their suppliers um, if they don't already have it. But it's not an insurmountable challenge. Certainly, there are companies who are doing it now. The larger companies, as you suggest, um, have those kinds of processes in place and have, you know, are able to report it already on a voluntary basis. Now, mind you, most I would say the majority of U.S. companies probably don't have that ability just yet. I think it might just be useful here just to clarify for those that are coming new to that scope three term, what that actually means. So it means the admissions across your value chain. So that is your, as Henry said, your suppliers and your distributors. And that is a lot to get your head around. And certainly it's going to that KYC piece that Henry was talking about. It is going to take a lot to get that data. And so the earlier you, you start. And I just want to finish off this, this section on California. I am saying when I was at COP28 in Dubai in December, California and Senator Henry Stern was speaking on a panel and, and he um I guess maybe it's important to, as he did, remind people that California, if it was a country, it would be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. So 
the rules it writes have global significance. And, and he was particularly pleased um, that the um, SS, uh, SB um, 235 had this scope three element in it. So it's just important to, you know, to say that they are really pleased with that and they see that as vital for the work that they are doing on carbon credits and carbon markets, which we will probably talk about on a podcast in the next season. <laughs> So, Henry, moving on, I think what has become apparent is that a lot of people are going to think, is there technology out there that can help me with this? Help, help, help technology vendors. But as we know, and you and I have seen a plethora of such vendors um, touting their words, and I don't mean that in any um, derogatory way at all. But as we know from other areas, um, when something goes wrong, saying to a regulator, oops, I outsourced it never gets you off the hook. So um, in terms of that mapping exercise that has to be done at the start um, to work out where your data is, what data you have, what data you don't have, what advice can we give to our listeners in in, in that space? Yes, um, I, I think and I, it just sort of reminds me of a uh, um, conference I attended late last year where there was a lot of discussion about what companies can do to help them collect scope three data from their uh, value chains. The number one thing that they should do, first of all, is consult the greenhouse gas protocol. So if you just go to Google, put in greenhouse gas protocol scope three, it'll take you right to this document that's been produced by GHD um, about scope three emissions, all of the areas that are included under scope three, such as they have indirect um, upstream activities, which include things like employee commuting, business travel, transportation and distribution. Downstream activities from your company include processing of products that have been sold, um, the end of life treatment of sold products, there's a tremendous amount of information and detail there that can help a company do an inventory, an initial inventory of its suppliers along its value chain and begin the process of collecting the information or seeing where the gaps are in terms of the data that you need. So this is really, I've heard this the GHG protocol described as the Bible uh, for scope three, and that every company should engage with that protocol, use it as an initial uh, blueprint for the data exercise that you should undertake uh, before you go out to any tech company that is touting, you know, we can solve all your problems, don't worry. You should really do this homework beforehand and um, that way you're, you're, you're better prepared once you engage some of these solution providers and you can target more effectively, you know, where, where the problems are, which they can then presumably help you with. But don't leave it all to, as, as Lindsay says, don't outsource your, the responsibility completely to, to these companies because, you know, if something does go wrong, then ultimately you're on you're still on the hook you can't point the finger at at the tech provider thank you henry that's really valuable insight 
That is it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Once again, I'd like to thank Henry for um, all of his valuable insight today. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. I will put a link to the um, panel session at COP28, the Henry Stern one that I mentioned in the show notes. And I will also put a link to a report that Henry and myself and our colleague Yi Zhang wrote late last year about ESG and because there's a very helpful governance chapter at the end of that with just a checklist that people could use um, for when they're, they're, they're sitting down to the planning. And as ever, your feedback is important to us. So please give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Thank you and goodbye. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.